Hey, Hershey Free, my name is Nick Schatz. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I'm so glad that you tuned in to worship with us online from your living room or wherever you are at the moment. Hey, before we get started with today's message, I have, uh, have a couple of new members to introduce to you. So we have Josiah Joseph and Kayla Joseph. So uh, if, if you've been coming here for a while, you've probably met them and bumped into them. But uh, if you see them next time you're in the building, make sure you say, Hey, welcome to the family as a member. So glad that these two can join us as members. Uh, One other thing I want to mention, you've already heard this announced, I believe, uh, but we do have starter groups starting this afternoon, this Sunday on March 21st, 2 p.m. in the courtyard here. So, uh, and, I, and I can't stress this enough, for those of you who are worshiping with us remotely and from your living rooms, if that is the only integration, if that is the only engagement you have with our church family, I, I strongly encourage you, if you are able to, if it is safe for you to do so, uh, please come out and jump into a small group and get involved in actual biblical community with our church. I don't think you'll regret that. I'm going to be here, so I hope that you can join us for that. Okay, so for today's sermon, we are going to be reading from Jeremiah chapter 29, so Jeremiah was a prophet in uh, Judah, and a prophet is it was a man or woman who spoke for God to God's people, and sometimes they had some uh, pretty scary or shocking messages that they would deliver to God's people. And so we're going to actually look at one of the most shocking, or I would even say one of the most outrageous messages that Jeremiah the prophet had to give to his people, one of the most outrageous messages he ever delivered to them, and it was shocking for them. So let's read this together. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, also known as Yahweh, was their God. Because there were other gods in the land, I'm going to refer to God as Yahweh many times in the sermon. So this is what Yahweh Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's the message. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. So they too may have sons and daughters. So have kids and grandkids, in other words. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So just kind of to sum up this section of Jeremiah's message, here's kind of what he's telling them to do. He's telling them, I want you to plant houses. God wants you to, uh, uh, sorry, build houses. He wants you to plant gardens and and eat from those gardens. He wants you to to marry and have kids and to have grandkids. He wants you to to seek the peace and prosperity of the city and and pray for the city that you are in. Now, if you were like me, you're probably thinking, this is not a very outrageous message. This doesn't sound outrageous at all. This sounds almost peaceful. It sounds sounds good. So, So why were the people so outraged when they got this message from Jeremiah? In fact, it gets even stranger, because look at the next couple of verses here, starting in verse 8. He, you know, Jeremiah goes on in this writing. He says, yes, this is what Yahweh Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Here's, here's the second part of this. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. In other words, there were other prophets in the land besides Jeremiah, many other ones, and they had a very different message they were delivering. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord declares Yahweh. So there were other prophets in the land saying the exact opposite of Jeremiah. They were saying, don't build houses, don't plant gardens, don't, whatever you do, don't have kids in this land, and do not seek the prosperity of this land. Instead, you should be seeking, you should be uh, in opposition to this land. You should be crossing your arms, you should be pointing your fingers, whatever you do, don't have kids and settle down in this land. This is, this is not going to be our permanent home. That's what the other prophets were saying. 
And so this out this absolutely outrage. I'm not going to have time to read this this next verse, but this was an outraging message for God's people to receive from Jeremiah. You want us to build houses and plant gardens and then settle down in this land and, and, and have baby showers and, and, and wedding showers and, and to seek the prosperity of the land and pray for its peace. You, you want us to do these things? It was an outrageous message. So here's my question for us today. Why were the people of Judah so outraged by Jeremiah's message? Once again, it doesn't seem like a message that should outrage anybody. Why were they so outraged by this message? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to go back and do a little bit of history lesson. We need to go back and learn a little bit about the history of what led up to this event. Now, for those of you who uh, are, are not as familiar with the Old Testament, it can kind of be like watching a random Star Wars movie and picking up right in the middle. And there, you have all these questions, like who's the Galactic Alliance, and why are they trying to find this Luke guy, and what's with the baby Yoda? I mean, it, it can be confusing when you pick up a random Star Wars movie and try to figure out what's going on. You don't know the storyline. You don't know the history of why are all these people fighting with each other, right? Well, in order to help us understand this, in order to answer this question, I want to go very, this very briefly through a history of what has come to this point when Jeremiah is living and writing this, okay? So when Israel first becomes a nation, they first become their, their own people with their own land following Yahweh, they go through a series of three kings. Saul was their first king. When Saul passes away, David becomes their second king. Now David, is, is for, he comes up all throughout the Bible, New Testament and Old Testament, and he becomes kind of the measuring stick for what it means to be a godly king, a king that leads the nation but also is wholeheartedly devoted to Yahweh and Yahweh's covenant with them, okay? He's a good king. When David passes away, Solomon, David's son, becomes the next king. And under Solomon's reign, uh, the the kingdom experiences their their greatest days. I mean, amazing prosperity, the economy booms. It, it It is a great time to be an Israelite when Solomon is king. Things are going well. Unfortunately, after Solomon passes away, everything goes downhill from there. And we are introduced to what I call the Boam boys, Okay? So after Solomon passes away, his son Rehoboam, that's the first Boam boy, he becomes the king. Now, there's also another guy named Jeroboam who was uh, some kind of aide or, or an assistant, or he, he worked for Solomon in some capacity, and he ended up wanting to be king as well. So this civil war breaks out in the land, and what we call the United Kingdom becomes the divided kingdom because the nation splits in two. Okay? The northern kingdom go, uh, maintains the name Israel, and Jeroboam, is their king. Their capital city is in Samaria. Now, the southern kingdom, Solomon's son Rehoboam remains the king of that area, of, of the southern kingdom, and they take on the name of Judah. Their capital city is in, you've probably heard of Jerusalem. That, that's still their capital city. And what we see happen here is there's a series of kings that come and go. If you read First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you see uh, each nation goes through about 20 different kings. And each of the kings is sort of uh, measured against, are you as, as righteous as David or were you as unrighteous as Jeroboam? We get uh, you know, good kings were compared to David, evil kings were compared to Jeroboam. I won't take time to read uh, those texts there. Uh, but basically what happens is all the 20 kings that come and go from Israel, starting with Jeroboam to the very last king of Israel, they, they, were, they, were, all ter- they were terrible. They were terrible kings. They did not follow Yahweh. They did not remain uh, faithful to the covenant. And so God removed his hand of protection over them and allowed a foreign nation, the nation of Assyria, to come in and, and, and take captive. So Assyria comes in, they defeat Israel's army, they besiege the capital city of Samaria, and they eventually actually, they, they carry away the residents. They, they carry them away as 
uh, or they deport them as migrants, as exiles, and take them into the land of Assyria to live in Assyria, which is, you know, I can't picture it on this map. It would be too big of a map. But thankfully, Judah had a good king at the time. Their king was Hezekiah. And because they actually had a handful of good kings, most of them were actually, uh, wicked, unfortunately, after Jeroboam. They did not follow after David's righteousness. But there were some of the good kings here. Hezekiah was a good king at the time when Assyria came. And so God protected that nation. They remained a nation, and they had a few more kings come and go after that. Unfortunately, we get this uh, message from God. Yahweh's great anger against Judah did not subside. And Yahweh announced, I will also spurn Judah just as I spurned Israel. And so a new superpower is around during this time. Assyria has been basically conquered by the Chaldeans or the Babylonians was another name for them. Babylon comes into Judah and Judah cannot withstand. They break down, uh, you know, break down the walls and they besiege the city of Jerusalem. And they do the same thing that Assyria did to Israel. And Babylon actually deports they, they, they exile the people away from Judah in, in a few different waves, but they exile them into the land of Babylon. So with that history, it's a little easier for us to answer that question. Why were the Judeans so outraged by Jeremiah's message? Well, this answers our question. You want us to build houses and plant watermelon seeds and throw wedding showers and baby showers. You want us to settle down in this land? This is not our land. You want me to have kids in, 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 in Babylon? You want me to have kids in this land? But my neighbors worship Marduk. You want me to have kids here? I don't, I don't want my kids in the school system here. See, you want me to pray for the peace of the city? But Babylon is, is, is wicked. The king is, is, is wicked. They, they worship other gods and they have other laws that do not follow the law of God. I, 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 can't, I can't settle down in this land. You want me to seek the prosperity of this land? I'm hoping this land burns down. I'm hoping the king, the king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is dethroned. I don't want to seek the prosperity of this city. I want to seek the opposition of this city. That's why the people of Judah were so outraged by this message that Jeremiah sent to them. I want you to build houses. I want you to settle down, seek the prosperity of the city. Man, they were ready to cross their arms and point their fingers. They did not want to follow that command from God. Now, again, in order to help us understand this, I, I want to ask this question. I wonder if any of you watching this, if any of the families watching this, have you ever been through a major move before? All right, Have you ever uh, you know, moved from, from one place to another and you experienced a culture shock? And by the way, I, I've talked to some of you around here, and, and when you move from Hershey to Palmyra, that's not the kind of thing I'm talking about. I, I mean like a major move where you go through culture shock. By the time I entered high school, my mom and I had moved 14 different times, so I've had my fair share of new school districts and new bedrooms and living out of boxes and all that kind of stuff. And uh, even in my adult life, I have lived in five different states, kind of dotted all around uh, the U.S., never, never uh, in a different country, but throughout the U.S. My first major move uh, to a different state, at least, was when I was 18. Uh, you know, I left the house. I was born and raised in North Carolina and moved over to California. So that was a, that was a talk about a major culture shock. You know, I come off the airplane, and I'm, I'm waving at everybody, you know, showing Southern hospitality, and nobody waves back. I'm thinking, man, are people mad at me? What, what have I done? I go to restaurants, and I order tea, and they bring me this, this brown liquid that tastes like cold dirt. <laughs> and I, I, at one place, I even said, hey, no, I was actually hoping for sweet tea. And the waitress, she points to these little blue packet thingies on the table and says, yeah, there's the sugar, the sweetener. And I almost lost it. I thought, no, I did not ask for chemically induced brown water. I want, I want sweet tea. You know, it was, it was, it was a major culture shock. Uh, my wife and I, we, we married uh, 
after leaving California and we moved straight to Indiana. And once again, I had a major culture shock. All right. We moved to this, this small city in the middle of rural Indiana and the city had been infiltrated by corn. Corn, I mean, you would drive for, for miles and miles and it's nothing but, but corn. It's just corn was everywhere. I even asked some of the people of the city that we had moved to, a city called Salem. I, I, hey, what are some things you guys like to do for fun? What are some hobbies? And uh, Different people would say they like to play cornhole. They like to do corn mazes. I thought, what? Hold on. Even your hobbies are based around corn? What is the deal with corn? You know, it was, it was a major culture shock. Uh, then from Indiana, my wife and I, we moved to Dallas, Texas. And once again, it was a culture shock. There, there was no corn in sight. Uh, no corn whatsoever. We were living in uh, like a concrete zoo, in other words. I mean, there were people everywhere, cars everywhere. Traffic was nuts. Everything was expensive. Everything was fast-paced, and it was, it was intense for a little while. We, we ended up uh, growing quite accustomed to it. And then we moved from Dallas uh, up, to, up to Pennsylvania right here in, in Hershey. And as some of you, you're not going to believe this, but during the five or six years that we lived in Dallas, I never saw a single deer. I never saw a single deer, not a single time. Of course, I move up here and I can barely back out of my driveway without running into one because there's, there's, there's animals everywhere. In fact, I go to the, the hospital here in Hershey, Hershey Med, and, and there, there's, there's cows in the front yard of the hospital. There's, there's animals everywhere. Uh, of course, once again, I've, I've, I've grown to love this place. We, we love it here. But, but each of these major moves, there was a culture shock that happened, and it was hard to adapt to a new culture. Now, I say that somewhat in jest because what... The Judean, what the Israelites did, and what the Judeans went through moving to Babylon, my, my, all my, my moves were fun. All right, I've, I've had an incredible life. What they went through was absolutely catastrophic. Catastrophic. This forced migration into this culture that was, it, it was, it was satanic in many ways. This is what one author puts. He, he says that this first generation of exiles, they experienced indescribable hardships, pains, and sacrifices. And believe it or not, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the entire Old Testament, it, it is infiltrated by this theme of exile. Of the major writing prophets, most of them, many of them, if not most of them, were writing anticipating the exile coming, or like Jeremiah, they were writing during the time of exile. Actually, uh, Jeremiah lived uh, before Israel was taken. He saw Israel go off to Assyria. He lived through a few kings here in Judah, and he also lived through the Babylonian exile. So he lived through all this stuff and was writing. So the major prophets, we're talking about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, Zechariah, Daniel, all of these, these were major messages God was giving to his people about exile. Exile was a major theme. Not only that, but the first five books of the Bible that we generally attribute to Moses, those were actually, virtually all scholars would agree uh, and, and propose now that the first five books of the Bible, as well as Joshua, Judges, Ruth, all, all these books, you know, Psalms, they were actually composed after, or, or, or they were uh, altered in such a way that they were composed in certain ways after the exile had happened. And there's hints of exile that come up, Genesis 11 being the Tower of Babel. Babel Babylon wasn't a city at the time, but it makes its way into the Pentateuch. I mean, these were books that were, they were affected by the exile when the people came back and returned. First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, these were obviously written after the exile, and they, they anticipate that and write with the exile in mind. The rest of the Bible speaks of the hardship that Judah experienced in returning to the land uh, after 70 years of being there, so Ezra and Nehemiah, so on and so forth. 
Uh, the Old Testament is infiltrated by this theme of exile. And the exile was a crushing experience, not just for the generation that was exiled, but for their kids and their grandkids. They were in Babylon for 70 years before any of them were able to return to their land. So you have kids and grandkids being born in Babylon, growing up in Babylonian culture, attending Babylonian schools, receiving Babylonian education, that they are meeting and marrying young men and young women in Babylon and getting married and having children of their own. And all the while, these kids and grandkids are growing up, sitting at the fireplace, listening to mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, talk about the glories of the homeland. They're talking about how, how terrible Babylon is, how much they, they, they despise King Nebuchadnezzar or the king at the time. And, and, and they're, they're growing up with these mixed messages that they're having to sift through. This, this, this exile was a catastrophic experience for them. And that's why Jeremiah's message was so outrageous. Oh, here's a quote that I want to read to you from Tim Keller. He writes, from Genesis 11, that's the Tower of Babel, all the way through Revelation, Babylon is represented as the epitome of a civilization built on selfishness, pride, and violence, the ultimate city of man. The values of this city contrast absolutely with those of the city of God. Yet here, the citizens of the city of God are called to be the very best residents of this particular city of men. God commands the Jewish exiles not to attack, not to despise, not to flee the city, but to seek its peace and love the city as they grow in numbers. So I think I would say there, there are at least two reasons why the people of Jeremiah's day bristled at this message. I, I think there were at least two reasons why they were so opposed, so outraged by Jeremiah's message that I want you to, I want you to plant houses. I, want, uh, build, I keep saying that. I want you to build houses. I want you to plant some watermelon seeds, have wedding showers, baby showers. I want you to seek the prosperity of the city. I want you to settle down here. I want you to pray for this city. There were at least two reasons, I suppose, why the people were so outraged and opposed to that message, why they wanted to cross their arms and point their fingers and oppose the city rather than seek its prosperity. Here, here they are. They assumed that thriving spiritually equaled political power. Number two, we'll come back to these. They assumed that faithfulness to God equaled opposition to everyone else. Let's take a minute and look at that first one. They assumed that thriving spiritually equaled political power. In other words, when the people of Judah heard Jeremiah's message to settle down and seek the peace and prosperity of this land, they had no category for that lifestyle. Like, you want me to build a house? I don't want to stay here. This isn't, this isn't God's land. This is some other land. They worship Marduk here. You want me to raise kids in this area? I, I, can't, I can't have kids here. I don't want kids growing up in the Babylonian school district. It, it's satanic. They teach astrology and the occult. They... they uh, they certify enchanters and, and magicians. I don't want kids being raised in, in this society. You want me to seek the prosperity of Babylon, but, but they don't even follow God's law. They have a, a law system that, and policies and legislation that's based on not God's law. You, you, I, I don't have a category for this. In order for God's people to thrive, we need a king that worships our God. We need legislation and policy that follows God's law. We need a people around us who share our values. I can't settle down here. That was the assumption. In order for us to thrive spiritually, we need to have political power. And, of course, this can be the same thing that we assume as well. We, we, need, we need a Christian president, right? We, or, or we need uh, Christian policies and legislation. It's so easy for us to think the exact same thing that they assume. They had no category for saying, no, I can thrive spiritually 
while at the same time <laughs> living in a place that, and, and having people in political power that are, are not of, of my same beliefs. I, they had no category for how that would work. I found this as an interesting quote, one that was uh, personally challenging for me that I want to read to you by Elliot Clark. He writes, If our collective Christian tone is complaint, if we continually lament our loss of cultural influence or social standing, if we weep and mourn as if Jerusalem has fallen or our chosen political agenda is overlooked, we expose our true values. That was convicting for me to read. Hey, listen, Hershey Free. In order for you and I to thrive spiritually, here's what you need to do. You need to live with Jesus, love like Jesus, and lead others to do the same. That's how you will thrive spiritually. It has very little to do with what's happening in culture. It has very little to do with what the Supreme Court is talking about. It has very little to do with what the White House is doing. It has very little to do with what colleges are teaching these days. In order for you to thrive spiritually, all you need to do is live with Jesus, love like Jesus, and lead others to do the same. Build a house, settle down, have kids, plant some watermelon seeds, throw a baby shower. You can live for God right here in this city. That's the message of Jeremiah. Okay? So, hey, they assumed that thriving spiritually equaled political power. Here's the second thing that, that I believe they assumed that made this so hard to accept Jeremiah's message. They assumed that faithfulness to God equaled opposition to everyone else. All right? Now, once again, I don't think the people of Judah had a category for this. They, they couldn't imagine a world in which being, you could be faithful to Yahweh and submit to Babylonian rule. How can I be faithful to Yahweh and submit to the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar? I, I don't know how I can do this. You want me not to fight? I thought the faithful thing to do would be to fight against Babylon. You can, uh, Jeremiah 21, this, the message from King Zedekiah, and, and uh, you can read that on your own. He, hey, we need to fight. And Jeremiah says, no, we, if you fight, you will die. You need to submit to Babylonian rule and be faithful to Yahweh. They had no category for this. How can we do this? You want me to serve God and also serve Nebuchadnezzar? But Nebuchadnezzar broke, he, he tore down our temple, and he built himself a 90-foot golden statue. How, how, can, I, how can I serve him? And also be faithful to Yahweh. How, how did the, they had no category for how this could work at the same time. And that's why I believe when they picked up this message from Jeremiah and read it, I, I would imagine they read it like this. Oh, pray for Babylon. Oh, I'm praying for Babylon. I'm praying that they fall and crumble. I'm praying that there's a coup. I'm praying a civil war. I'm praying that Nebuchadnezzar is dethroned. I'm praying for them. <laughs> and they kept reading. You want me to pray for the prosperity and peace of this city? I, I, I'm not sure I can do that. They had no category for this. Hey, listen, Hershey Freak, in order for you to be faithful to God, here's what you need to do. Live with Jesus, love like Jesus, and lead others to do the same. That's what you do. And our church will not do that effectively if we are known as the church in town that is against everything. We will not do that effectively if we are more interested in being the moral majority than being the missional minority. We will not be able to do this effectively if we are so focused on that. We need to build houses, settle down, raise kids, plant some watermelon seeds right here and serve Yahweh, serve God right here in this city. You can do it at the same time as being faithful to God.
So hey, here's what Hershey Free needs to do. We need to apply Jeremiah's message to our world today. And so I want to give you a couple examples. One is the example of Daniel. Daniel was a young man who lived in uh, who, who lived in Jerusalem when Babylon came to take them as exiles, and he actually moved into Babylon with them. So not only did uh, not only was Daniel given a new Babylonian name, not only was he uh, uh, educated in the Babylonian education system, he also had a federal job working for the capital city of Babylon. That was Daniel. And he was able to be faithful to God, faithful to Yahweh, at the same time as serving and integrating into the culture of Babylon. Now, when it came time that that the king said, hey, you can't pray to your God anymore, he wasn't going to do that. When Nebuchadnezzar said, hey, I want you to bow down to my golden statue that I built, he he wasn't going to do that. But he was still able. He understood that it is possible to thrive spiritually without having political power, without having influence in in the political systems, the, the leadership of the nation as a whole. Another example, or our perfect example, would be Jesus, okay? Jesus lived hundreds of years after Jeremiah. Actually, it was after the, the exiles, the third generation of them, had come back to Judah. So he was in the land of Judah, right? But Judah was not in control. Roman authority was in control at the time. So they still felt like exiles in many ways. And there's this interesting story where someone approaches Jesus, and he says, hey, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar, or should we pay tithe to God? Once again, he had no category for how you can pay taxes to Caesar and tithe to God. You can't honor Caesar and honor God at the same time. There's no, I don't have a category for that. He didn't understand how this could be done. And Jesus said, you should do both. You, in fact, the only way to remain faithful to God is to also render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. The, the two work hand in hand. Okay? Seek the prosperity of this city, not the opposition of this city. So listen, in order for you to thrive spiritually, you need to live with Jesus, love like Jesus, and lead others to do the same. Hershey Free, don't fall into the assumption that living spiritually equals political power. And don't fall into the assumption that faithfulness to God equals opposition to everyone else. Build houses, plant gardens, settle down, live for Yahweh, live for God right here in this city, and seek the peace and prosperity of the city as you do so. Hey, I just want to remind you, before the screen goes black, you're probably going to be tempted to think that church is over. I want to remind you that church isn't over because church is a people, and church is a people acting out the mission of God. You are the church. Church is far from over. In fact, church begins as soon as this this screen goes black because you are living out the church. You are not going to be dismissed. Instead, you are being sent. You are being sent to seek the peace and prosperity of the land that you were in, remaining faithful to God while also living as good citizens in this land. Thank you. God bless.